webinar. We are going to begin in a minute. Thank you folks for joining us. It is a great pleasure that this webinar series always turns up some interesting topics. When people get involved, then you hear of some interesting things that you've never thought of before. I had never thought about this subject, nor do I claim to know anything about this subject. I am very thankful to Amir Durrani and Asaftar Suhail for bringing this together. Uh, it's a great topic, well worth thinking about, except that I know nothing about it, so I will not even pretend to say anything about it. Uh, we have idleness and mental health problems. Challenges to Pakistan's demographic dividend. Um, as I said, I have very little idea, but I think I'm very interested to learn. It'll be a fun topic. I can see lots of potential. I can see lots of things to say on this, but certainly I will hold myself uh, and learn about it. So to begin with, let me say, Amir Durrani, who is uh, one of the key architects of this webinar, who's help, who helps us organize a lot of things and is a key um, partner with PID and a key thinker in Pakistan. Amir Durrani heads Re-Energia, um, a very um, entrepreneurial consulting firm, as well as an uh, um, entrepreneurial firm. So I would ask Amir to start the topic, introduce it, and kind of lead the discussion. Amir, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to stick to English because still we don't know if we have uh, any audience differences. But, you know, just to begin with, first and foremost, thank you very much uh, for the introduction. I must say that actually this is Sathya Sohail's idea. Uh, I actually only contributed to kindling it. So I think that uh, he will do most of the introduction to the narrowing topic of what we call youth idleness. But my job, because Durin Nayab, I hope she's listening, backed out of doing this introduction. So I am actually taking this on. Like you, I know nothing. I'm a civil engineer. But it comes, my background of what I'm going to present is coming from me as a job provider, as an employer, as a person trying to create value in the Pakistan society by running a business. So uh, if you, I'll quickly share some screens, but I think that, Naveel, um, am I allowed to do this? Yeah, yeah, you are. Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. Mm -hmm. I am going to say share screen. Mm -hmm. uh, select basic. Uh, Nabil, I'm unable to share screen, but in order to just sort of... Sir, co-host can share screen but I'm unable to do so. Can you just show, I sent you the slides, but in the meantime, I'll start because I think I don't want to waste people's time. Yeah, let me know once you have the slides up, but let me just start uh, talking about this. Uh, first and foremost, I think that, you know, to introduce this topic of idleness, let's actually discuss about what is the demographic dividend that Pakistan keeps talking about and what are the opportunities and challenges. So first and foremost, I think Pakistan has access to demographic dividend. We have a high working age population and low dependency ratio in, and basically that should result in increasing output. I mean, I, if I had the slides, I could show you the curves. What this really means is that we are gonna be putting out about 2 million people, young people, by young meaning between the ages of 15 and 29, uh, both sides included, 
we're going to be putting in about 2 million to 2.1 million people out into the workforce for the next four decades. Now, that really spun my head. I didn't think it was that long. Uh, the question, therefore, would be, are we generating, they're making them employable? And we'll talk a little bit more about the difference between what I call deployable and employable. The old economics, therefore, which you hear on TV and everywhere in Pakistan's economic discourse states that, therefore, you should generate about a million jobs a year for 30 years to keep the steady state, i.e. The, the employment rate at where it is. However, I would like to posit a different question. I'd like to ask, is, according to new economics, we should ask the question, how do we keep the youth productive and deployed, rather than just saying employed? Um, another very interesting feature of this demographic dividend is that the earner-consumer ratio really isn't going to stagnate or go down. Actually, according to some numbers, which I really don't believe in, but at least I should believe them for the next 10 years, UNDP had the goal to produce them until the 2100. But Nadeem Saab knows pretty well how that is done in a very strict fashion. Nevertheless, even if we believe these numbers for the next 10 years, the sharp growth of the 15 to 64 age demographic, which means the proportion of workers in the total population keeps increasing steadily and therefore should be leading to a traditional increase in GDP if all goes well. However, the dividend uh, is not inevitable. Nabil, do we have the slides on and can I show this one? Sir, Sir, you have sent uh, okay. to Nabil, but uh, I haven't received so far. No, that's fine. That's fine. Let me let me Nabil just quick because I'm all yeah, very quickly. So we can show the send these later on. So basically, having said and established that traditionally, as we as you know, uh, Nadim Saab type economists and all the crowd says, we have a dividend that we are sitting on. Can the question is, can we cash it? And the other bigger question, which Nayab did not choose to answer today, is, is the dividend, uh, what are the obstacles? So essentially, there are some traditional and some low uh, non-traditional uh, obstacles. To me, the first thing is really traditionally, uh, you know, why are we not going to be able to cash the dividend? I mean, that's the hypothesis is because Pakistan, number one, has a very low savings rate, which means low investment, which means in very layman's term, low job production, no matter which sector we look at. Inappropriate education, again, it means low deployability. Inadequate healthcare, keeping us from our inability to deploy. And I think today's webinar really relates to that, which means that idleness as a disability, which more people are going to talk about. So we're basically killing deployability. And the other thing, which I think Javed Hassan is going to comment on, is inadequate human capital, which again leads to low deployability. Now, how do you define low deployability? In my simple terms, it's low deployability means a low skills match to job market plus low quality of entrepreneurial space, which in turn is the summation of bad regulation and inability of uh, unavailability of capital. The other thing, the last two things which we need to look at as obstacles to us cashing this dividend is also the cultural barrier and language barriers. Amongst the cultural barrier, a big one is the low female labor force participation, which is abysmally low, close to 20%. And last but not least, the future of work, what is coming ahead. Now, having said that, another thing which I think this whole discussion and debate links to is the traditional measurement of productivity and the role of youth. Now, traditionally, the way productivity is measured, basically the convention focus on role of producer, increasing output with respect to time, 
makes the youth, and I mean, amazingly, if you look at where youth are employed in the world, 77% of the world's youth are in the informal sector or employed by the informal economy. The percentage for Pakistan is 70%. What does this mean? Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. And I think these are the things why we've started this topic. But let's talk about in the end, before handing over to Sakhir Saab, is what are the likely threats if Pakistan does not orient policy, its current policy, to cash this dividend? You see, the problem there is not simply that uh, you know, there is obviously this vicious circle that our economists, somebody says you need to have a certain GDP growth rate to stimulate the youth, whereas some of us say, well, you know, if the youth are not cashed upon properly, then you will never have the GDP growth rate. So it seems to be like a chicken and egg question. But having said that, the first thing is, most likely, Pakistan does not achieve the growth rate. But the other important thing is, and that is actually borne out scientifically, is that the vulnerable population and the elderly and the young, the very young, which is below 15, will sandwich and be, create large swaths of unproductive labor. Brain drain, rising youth dissatisfaction, societal stratification, civil disorder. I mean, the list is enormous. For a country like Pakistan, I don't need to really get you guys thinking even more vividly. But essentially, I leave it at that. It is a national security threat, security threat larger than any that we are traditionally thinking about. So with that setting of the stage, I'd like uh, Nadeem Saab to hand it over to Sohel Saab to set the stage for the exact uh, next two discussions. Thank you. Jeep, uh, Nadeem Saab, uh, should I start? Well, uh, I must start by thanking uh, Fight. Uh, briefly, uh, Amir has set uh, the context and uh, how we started uh, talking about it. Uh, before I uh, kind of introduce the topic in greater detail, I would like to uh, welcome uh, Ms. Alfa Subuhi, Dr. Izban Taj, and Saeed Hassan Javed more formally, uh, uh, who are our panelists today, uh, who have joined, taken out their time, and uh, they are uh, with us. Uh, now, uh, we, uh, we uh, with some friends, we have established a think tank dedicated to social protection uh, called Social Protection Resource Center. So, uh, how have we arrived here? That would actually uh, introduce the topic uh, also. We, uh, I mean, we all know that social protection usually has two main elements. One is health protection and the other is the financial protection. And practically speaking, uh, we our traditional social security, which was accepted as a right in 1976 UN Convention on uh, Civil uh, Rights, uh, that is work-based. So you have largely work-based social security and uh, then social insurance. And finally, if needed, social assistance or income transfers also kick in. Uh, now, if you look at the current uh, context internationally, we have we have two approaches to uh, social protection. One is the uh, UN approach of social protection floors, where ILO is the lead, but other agencies, World Bank is also there, uh, where you try to uh, have floors against the vulnerabilities which could be there. We we had this uh, pandemic, we have disasters, uh, we have uh, poverty, hunger, such things. Uh, and the other uh, aspect uh, is the uh, lifespan aspect that you try to provide social protection from childhood to the old age. 
Uh, now, in, in this context, normally one would not hear about the adolescent or uh, youth because it is expected that they would have minimum health needs and they would be, uh, as one of the ILO study uh, put it, that in education, in training, uh, most of them would be there and then they would go to the uh, job market. But if uh, we uh, start having health needs of adolescents and youth, then it would create a new phenomena for the social protection needs. Now at uh, Social Protection Resource Center, we have been uh, working from all the three perspectives. Uh, one of our major uh, report on state of social protection in Pakistan uh, would be uh, issued in two weeks time. We have already brought out um, state of old age well-being in Pakistan, which we launched uh, with the help of WHO on the 1st October uh, UN Day of Older Persons. And our report on disability would be launched this year. Um, uh, the annual uh, state of care of old age uh, of person with disability on 3rd December. That's the International Day of um, uh, Disability. And actually, this is the theme of the uh, this year's International Day of Disability, which brought us to this topic, which is invisible disabilities, which are also called intellectual uh, disabilities. But when we were looking at the old age and persons with disabilities, there. Uh, when we did the surveys for a pandemic, there we came across uh, the two phenomena in the across the lifespan uh, context, a surge in intellectual disabilities among the uh, youth and women. Uh, so from the lifespan perspective, we see a surge, which is confirmed by the doctors. Uh, that the intellectual disabilities, which usually would cover both the developmental disorders, that is uh, autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, and would also include the psychosocial disorders. So these are um, kind of globally also, they are um, on the rise and in Pakistan too. The second major phenomenon which we came across was that this surge was across the classes. So you find uh, intellectual disability among the youth, adolescents and youth, both in upper classes, as well as in the working and middle classes. Now, uh, when uh, you find intellectual disability in older persons, you understand uh, its dynamics and it would enhance your uh, health need, uh, health protection needs. But when we have high levels of intellectual disability among women and then among the adolescents and youth, there the socioeconomic implications are uh, are much bigger uh, <clears throat> but we uh, we have realized that this is a new phenomena in in pakistan and it needs to be studied uh, much uh, better so in in this uh, context we started uh, looking at the adolescent well-being as in itself a major topic of uh, social protection and there when we looked at the out of labor force population, one way to understand that the linkage of uh, youth uh, with the job market, labor market is the number of people which are in the third category. As we all know that uh, the labor force survey conducted by Pakistan Bureau of Statistics would have first category people in the employment, then the people who are seeking the employment and then out of labor force population. Now, usually we would think and it's largely collect correct because the, the biggest chunk of people out of labor force is the women. Uh, 
but now we have this increasing trend that uh, uh, we have larger number of youth in the third category. Right now, according to the latest labor force survey 2017, 55% of youth is out of labor force. Now, 30 million people, it's, it's already high. Uh, people are, of course, in education, in training, but there is a large missing number. Uh, we have tried to unpack this number. In principle, Pakistan Bureau of Statistics should do, uh, but we believe that there is a high number, which is growing in number, which we have called idle. Now, this is the idle population, which is our focus in today's webinar in, in, and in our forthcoming research that uh, what is this paradoxical situation that on the one hand, we have very relatively low unemployment uh, rates in Pakistan. <coughs> uh, the number of people out of labor force is swelling. Uh, and then the productivity of people on the job is also uh, either stagnant or going down, as Amir has also said. So first of all, we need to revisit the way we collect and present our uh, data. Now, uh, as we started from uh, the disability perspective in, in the whole question, we asked this question that uh, whether this intellectual, this is the intellectual disability which is keeping uh, youth uh, out of labor force. Or is it other way around that work is creating high levels of anxiety, depression, etc., and they then uh, get out of the uh, uh, workforce and then they stop even seeking the employment uh, and come into the third category. Uh, now, this uh, took us to uh, the interesting uh, question of the productivity of the youth in the job that what is the quality, psychological quality of our youth, um, which is manifested in terms of higher or uh, lower productivity on, on the job. And there, you know, everybody uh, would tell you so many anecdotes that the youth in the service have these attitude and problems which are verging at behavioral disorders uh, and uh, procrastination, et cetera, all uh, they, they are real problems at the organizational level uh, the productivity is a problem. Retention of good human resource of the human resource is a problem. Uh, job hopping is uh, is a problem. People cannot sustain uh, their jobs. So uh, I, I can conclude that the way we looked at this was that we are facing three sets of problems. Number one is that the quality of young people coming to the job market is low. And if this needs to be explored, this would be perhaps linked with stunting, with low IQ, which is produced by stunting also, but there could be many other reasons. And we uh, tend to think that the uh, poverty and inequality are putting a lot of psycho uh, social pressures on the adolescents and youth coming from the working uh, class. So there, it, uh, that linkage has to be uh, studied. Uh, then, uh, that is one uh, major uh, problem that uh, we have on job performance of youth. That is a second uh, set of problem that we need to address. Uh, and then the third one, which is about the idleness that why so many people do not even want to work. 
And if, if it continues like that, what would happen to the demographic uh, dividend? And these three uh, sets of questions for the policymakers, organization, organizations, parents, community, uh, these are extremely important questions because uh, this phenomena, if left unchecked, can have very serious uh, consequences. Um, for example, in, in Nairobi, uh, a latest study of 2019 asserts that on the streets of Nairobi, actually the name of the study is the idle youth in the streets. 65% of the youth in Nairobi is on the street, uh, involved either in petty crimes or just uh, roaming around, uh, small time mugging. And then they have formed into ethnic outfits which fight with uh, each other in the slums and they uh, have become self-appointed vigilante and they have absolutely no appetite now to work. They're not, they're not even uh, ready to work and 90% of this 65% youth has intellectual disability. And, and, and Dr. Zwan Taj would tell that it, uh, the, at the earlier stages of intellectual disability, you can manage it, but uh, once you go deep into it, it becomes much and much more difficult and then make them work or, or use work as a treatment of uh, disability also has limitations if you wait uh, too long. In Indonesia, they are taking this issue very seriously and there are many studies there. Uh, they, they write in the studies that adolescent well-being uh, is a public good. And it states responsibility to look look at the uh, the causes and uh, offer the remedies. Uh, uh, if you uh, look at Pakistani uh, phenomena, you know the Urdu equivalents of idleness, for example. So we have many pejorative words uh, for idle, like awara, nikamma, fareg. In Punjabi, they call it vela. Now uh, these are all pejorative terms. Uh, they could be a lore or attraction for being idle in the working class youth, uh, which could be mediated by the media or you idealize being uh, free as, um, as, as well off. Uh, or social media may also be creating such environment where you are apparently busy the whole day, but uh, you do not earn any much or or are not productive. But we also feel that this phenomenon of idleness needs to be looked at much more sympathetically also. Uh, there may be serious socioeconomic pressures, uh, domestic violence, uh, other pressures, which are creating the intellectual disability, which then results in the uh, low so energy. Sorry to interrupt. Just letting you know, we are at seven twenty-seven. Yeah, this is my last sentence. So uh, there, uh, with this context, that this phenomena needs to be studied uh, sympathetically. We designed uh, this uh, seminar and uh, requested uh, Ms. Arfa Subuhi, who has, uh, who is a PS officer. Uh, she spent uh, many years at the end of her career as director general of the Civil uh, Services Academy uh, to talk about uh, the psychological quality of the people who joined the service. And then we have requested Dr. Zwan Taj to share his thoughts about the psychosocial causes which are resulting in the kind of uh, youth that we have. And then finally would have NAPTEC, uh, which uh, they would talk about the 
possible correction in the labor market through uh, training. So now over to Ms. Uh, Mr. Rizwan Taj. Dr. Nadeem, just to let you know before Rizwan Taj says, according to him, I'm officially a miscreant in the society. So <laughs> I'm going to disappear from the screen while he speaks. Let me just quickly, let me just quickly, uh, uh, before I bring in Rizwan Taj Sab, Rizwan Taj Sab is a consulting psychiatrist. He uh, would know a lot more about this subject. But Rizwan Sab, before you come on, let me quickly put in my two cents worth from what I've heard. Um, I think we are talking about the youth. And one thing that Saptar Sabha said, we've got a stunted population. It seems that we have a low IQ population. Is that correct? Are we all now physically, mentally, sorry, bereft? If you are mentally bereft, then let's not talk about it. We are a stunted population. We are totally, um, you know, low IQ, incapable of doing anything. So why worry about it? Let's go on. Second thing that worries me is when people say states should do this. The state has already done enough. State has ruined everything as far as we can see. We've done a lot of work and the state has killed the country. The state has killed the economy. The state has already, the state is fighting for power and they're destroying everything around them. The third thing, Rizwan Sab, that I'd like to put to you is, why do we look to the state? And secondly, I think it's not just the youth who are idle. I noticed the elders are idle too. The entire offices in Pakistan are idle. The entire culture is one of idleness. Please, Rizwan Sahib, am I wrong? Explain this to us. Okay, um, thank you very much. Um, I would like to appreciate the organizers for this <clears throat> extremely crucial and very important uh, for Pakistan, uh, this topic. And uh, there's a lot ca that can be achieved. And uh, unfortunately, very few people are looking at this area. And if Pakistan is to be progressive, in, and have its place in the community of nations, we must mobilize our youth and we must help them uh, achieve excellent standards so that they are <clears throat> successful future in their lives and their work as well. Now, um, I'm also, I'm not just a psychiatrist, I'm also the principal of the medical, government medical college in Islamabad. And uh, uh, I am also the dean of medicine in PEMS as well. So we deal with a range of youth, postgraduates and undergraduates. And, and of course, being the principal, so I'm also to look at the um, people who are working under me, including the faculty and the support staff as well. So uh, behavior and I really feel very sad that people in general are very, very, um, it is, you really need to push them to make them work. And nobody wants to work and everybody wants a free salary and the government job is a cushy job and uh, you have it forever nobody can kick you out the rules are so strict and um, if i look at my faculty so i think maybe out of 100 people say 30 percent are actually very very hard workers the rest are just passing their time and the same goes for the support staff as well that uh, you really when i ask them that what is this guy doing what is what is his job? What is his job description? Nobody has an answer. promotion, seniority, and that's all they are concerned about. And then uh, when we uh, look at the students, so maybe uske bhi thode se statistics share karunga aapse. Ki unme kya ho raha hai? Aur kisi ne, gender ki baat ki, to 
um, we have open merit system in the medical school. Our school is the, uh, the federal medical college is the top merit school in Islamabad. So 70% of the girls are taking admission and 30% are the boys. And when we work long-term work, pe jate hai, the, uh, the girls who are working is maybe less than 30%. So most of them end up as housewife raising children. And it's so painful because it takes a lot of effort and a lot of money and the government spends a lot of money on these students. And it's all gone to waste because they are absolutely not interested to work and they probably have other reasons for joining the medical school. So all these uh, are sort of uh, across the board problems. So let me, uh, the topic that I was allocated and I was told to just do it in 10 minutes is the youth personality problem. So um, we, we've been actually focusing on this since the new government came up and the president had a lot of interest and he had given it three-year corona and everything sort of collapsed. So uh, I will talk about the slide. Uh, youth is really a very interesting time uh, and uh, the age range the 15 to 24 is very, very interesting and very important part of your life where everything is changing, physical, emotional, behavior, everything is changing. You are growing up, your hormones are bursting out and you are your body is changing and your behavior is changing and you are developing new experiences and you are looking at things. So it's a very interesting and interesting and exciting time. And this is the time where some sort of advice, guidance, direction will make a huge difference to your life in the future. And uh, <clears throat> this is also an age of very sens um, high sensitivity. So anything that happens, any incident, be it a positive incident or a negative incident, it would have a very big uh, impact on the youth. So it's a time of change and it lays the foundation for the future. So what happens in during this period and how we manipulate and how we create an environment and how we um, help them uh, focus on their future and their behavior and their uh, personality and how they develop is so important. So see are some of the factors. Now, the genetics are always there. You inherit what your parents' personality was to some extent. And of course, in the last 10 years, the studies have shown that with environmental strong influences, such as abuse, be it physical or sexual, your genetics are changed. Your genetics at gen genes levels, there are changes in your uh, system. So to some extent, the genetics are always there. You inherit if your father was aggressive or whatever, you will also inherit some of those tendencies or whatever the problem may be. So genetics are always there and it's a, it's a chunk of your personality, say with 30 to 40%. And then you go on to the events and experiences that you have since childhood. And even to the extent when the child is in the uh, stomach of the mother and what she does, what she eats, the music she hears, uh, the conversation she has, the mood she shows, it has an influence on the child. And if the mother is depressed during pregnancy, the child is shown, confirmed to be shown be to show behavior problems when he enters school. So this is the uh, level of changes in the environment that influence you. And then you, as you go on to the school and then onwards, any events or experiences, whatever they may be, positive or negative, 
they will certainly keep uh, imprint on and will reflect later on. So, so crucial to look and watch and all the things that happen in your life, whatever they, they may be. And then there's the question of role models. So I had a very good, interesting question I used to ask students, ke, role model kon hai? And of course, most of them didn't have an answer. But later on, uh, they had no answer. I mean, they had no role model to follow. And that is so sad, so sad. And I said, no, just forget about people and personalities on TV. Just forget about people around you. Maybe your father, your uncle, your brother, whatever. Look at him. See, maybe you find something positive in him. So role models and we have failed to generate maybe a few cricketers or something to generate role models for our youth. Then some you have been all been talking about disabilities. It's such a big topic. It's such a big topic. Autism serious lower level problems. You might have a reading problem, you might have a maths problem. Uh, you might have uh, an IQ range lower side so that means you will not be able to function as well as a person who has a slightly higher IQ. And nobody does that here. Nobody knows what obviously studies affect life So disabilities topic range so you have autism, autism is a disorder, but autistic features are more common. You might have one or two features of autism, which means social withdrawal or whatever. You might not have the full-blown uh, autism spectrum disorder. And with that, there are 10 other diseases, like Asperger's, which people don't understand. So that's also an issue, that these because if you know that this, this person has that kind of problem since childhood, they can be detected at four, five, six, seven, eight years. Then you can actually guide them that you have to do this, that you have to And all the time we see people who are being pushed by their families that you have to do this, whereas they do not have the capacity to do that. Then you have relationships. The development of personality of the youth is so crucial for relationships and it depends on the kind of relationships he or she has with the people around him be it friends be it his grandparents be it his parents whoever it is so the, the if you have a strong uh, confident uh, supportive pa parent figure or any person in your life you will always do well you will always be confident and you will always have trust in other people so in our uh, in our kind of work relationships are so crucial that you cannot under, uh, imagine how important having a good, strong relationship is. Then you have opportunities. You have people who are going to the, all the good schools and you have people who are going to the madrasas. And we've forgotten about the millions of kids in the madrasa. I really don't know where they are going and what they're doing and what uh, is happening to them. And then you have the people going to these ghost schools, the government run and nobody knows where they are or And you know that school may actually, as you go up the ladder from primary to secondary, the people dropout rate keeps on 
मूविंग वेरी फास्ट इन पाकिस्तान और हम बांग्लादेश और श्रीलंका और नेपाल से बहुत पीछे हैं इन टर्म्स ऑफ अटेनमेंट इन एजुकेशन देन यू गो ऑन टू रिलीजन अगेन रिलीजन आई डोंट वॉन्ट टू टॉक टू मच अबाउट इट बट इट्स समथिंग वेरी इंपॉर्टेंट इन आर लाइफ इट इज समथिंग दैट इज इम्बेडेड इन आर सिस्टम दैट वी नीड वी कैन यूज इट पॉजिटिवली एज वेल मैं सिर्फ ये बात करूंगा इस पर कि उसको हम पॉजिटिवली भी यूज कर सकते हैं सो रिलीजन हैज एन इम्पैक्ट एंड वी मस्ट कीप दैट इन माइंड वी कॉन्ट इग्नोर इट एंड वी कॉन्ट डिसमिस इट फिर आ जाता है आपका कल्चर तो जो आपको घर में कल्चर मिलता है जो आपको स्कूल में कल्चर मिलता है जो आपको दोस्तों में कल्चर मिलता है वो आप सारी उम्र कैरी करते हैं तो दैट कुड बी अ कल्चर ऑफ बींग डूइंग हार्ड वर्क दैट कुड बी अ कल्चर ऑफ आइडलनेस दैट कुड बी अ कल्चर ऑफ बींग सॉर्ट ऑफ साइकोपैथी का हो सकता है एंटी सोशल एलिमेंट्स हो सकते हैं तो कल्चर इज ऑल्सो देयर then we go on to the media and in this day and age the media is so terribly important uh, as be it the social media jo aapke sath 24 ghante aap aapke paas everybody has a phone you can't deny that to aap usme messages padhte hain negative bhi hote hain positive bhi hote hain aap usse ye bhi hota hai aap usse encourage bhi ho sakte hain discourage bhi ho sakte hain and of course just to give you an idea jo corona hua tha to humne saro ye aata tha ki hamare falane doctor ko ho gaya falane doctor ki death ho gayi it was very very painful for us so media and uh, television may up you see all these people fighting with each other using bad language all the time this is happening so the media will influence the youth the youth will see that after aap jab dramo ki taraf aate hain to they have no other issue except marriage and it is so unfortunate that marriage ke alawa pakistan mein koi dramo ke liye koi issue nahi hai they will not talk about social issues they will not talk about positivity they will not talk about youth development they will talk only about one issue and that is marriage unfortunately then you talk about economics again there's a disparity uh, between the have nots and the haves and r is a medical school of the government and the fees is very nominal lekin har roz mere paas application aati hai ki unfortunately i am from gilgit and i am from balochistan and i can't pay please mera ye kuch kar de mujhe postpone kar de meri fees ko postpone kar de and i feel very bad about this ye disparity hai hamare moshre mein and then you go on to the injuries so if you have injury of any kind be it emotional because of abuse be it physical because of head injury usse aapki intellectual performance or future performance pe bahut zyada fark padta hai so when we take a history we always ask ke bachpan mein aapko kabhi epileptic fit nahi pada tha aap kabhi gir to nahi gaye the aapki paidaish ke waqt did you have a forceps delivery did you have a head injury or something like that to ye cheeze hum poochte hain did your mother fall when you were and all these things are very important to us any kind of injury and then we go on to the emotional injury where jitni uh, bhi studies hui hain unme prove kiya hai ki the emotional injuries are more or abuse is more severe in terms of long term impact as compared to sexual and physical abuse the emotional abuse emotional abuse means not talking not uh, communicating properly giving a cold shoulder whatever uski uh, definition mein aata hai oh that's even more severe than being physically abused or sexually abused so these are some of the influences that i'm discussing you and then you have the pressures as you grow up and you become a youth you have the academic pressure of being trying to study and uh, having a syllabus which is very very difficult to manage you have the personal issues uh, you are growing up and you are developing relationships and you are not able to handle them and you are developing uh, all kinds of problems because of them so ye personal issues hain you might be carrying baggage from your home to your work to your uh, study place wo bhi hai financial ka maine zikr kar diya fir you might be physically damaged in some way 
and that would be affecting you and you might be insecure about the future ki kya hoga kya nahi hoga mera future kya hoga everybody is insecure so what is the personality so aap jab kisi se milte hain when you go and meet somebody and you talk to them and you ask them questions and you meet them again and you test them in different situations it is actually what you are trying to do is assess them can i trust this guy is he a good can be a be a good friend you are doing is you are assessing his personality the combination of our habits our traits the way we react in our environment combination of behavior cognition means ki hamari soch kaisi hai kis level par hai aur hamare emotional patterns kya are we an emotional person are we a cold person are we a stable person to ye five basic traits hain ki i don't want to go into detail because mera time bhi kam hai neuroticism basically means that you are very sensitive in your moods and you are unstable is tarah ka person jo hai aapki work environment ke liye ek problem create extroversion means going out being outgoing and all that that is helpful to a certain extent and being very um, strong willed and everything else agreeableness be to some extent is uh, also very good openness to experience is also very good to some extent uh, but consciousness consciousness this is the most important part of this and honesty maine pakistan ke liye dala because people are generally dishonest you can understand that now i might meet 100 people every day and i fail to find one or two who are not dishonest and that is a problem in pakistan so honesty is a trait that we value very much so we talk about consciousness which is very very important to the productive workforce उसमें द क्वालिटी ऑफ फिशिंग टू डू वंस वर्क और ड्यूटी वेल एंड थॉरली इसमें एफिकेसी आ जाती है उसमें बीइंग ऑर्गेनाइज आ जाता है उसमें बीइंग रिस्पॉन्सिबल आ जाता है उसमें बीइंग गोल डायरेक्टेड आ जाता है ये आपके and they all re- react differently to different circumstances be it a some kind of a trauma or something there somebody will run away somebody will laugh it away somebody will become quiet somebody will start crying so you, everyone is different and everyone's circumstances are different now we come on to the topic which is very crucial to what we are discussing mental health ye jo iska urdu mein tarjuma hai zaini sehat which applies to everyone it doesn't mean बीमारी and are motivated to do so uh, mental health is where we are uh, focused on at this time so what helps we maine aapko relationships ka bata diya good role models ka bata diya all the evidence shows that small having small families helps all the acha positive reinforcement is probably one of the most important aspect of everything so abhi jab hum corona ke liye doctors ke liye hum aur nurses ke liye package bana rahe the ki humko kaise करें तो मैंने उनको कहा कि यू नीड टू री इनफोर्स बिहेवियर तो आपने उनको अच्छे सर्टिफिकेट्स देने हैं उनको प्रमोशन देनी है उनको फाइनेंशियल इंसेंटिव्स देने हैं ताकि वो और मोटिवेट हो एंड दिस हेल्प दे ऑल गॉट सर्टिफिकेट्स एंड एवरीथिंग सो पॉजिटिव री इनफोर्समेंट मींस बीइंग प्रेज फॉर एवरीथिंग दैट यू डू 
so important because it is a determinant and of your behavior in the future. Having a stable home environment, domestic violence is very common and we need to look into that. But having a stable home environment has an effect on your personality and you actually follow what is going on in your home, in your future life. Opportunities for a good education, when I discussed earlier, education, attainment, and retention is very, very important for us in, as a country. focus how we keep our students in our education system so that they at least complete their basic education. And protection or absence of negative influences. So drugs will destroy a youth. And drugs are so bad and everything is available in Pakistan. Everything and every second person is on it. Uh, you've got heroin, you've got all that. So your personality damages you and your future work environment What is required? An ability to meet the demands of the situation. Uh, everyone needs to be healthy mentally, physically to meet the demands of a competitive, highly demanding life. ये मैं थोड़ा सा हमने एक स्टडी की थी 400 यूथ पे जो मेडिकल स्टूडेंट्स थे एंड वी वर आई विल जस्ट गो ऑन टू द लास्ट पार्ट ऑफ इट ये वी फाउंड आउट दैट दैट 70% ऑफ द स्टूडेंट्स हैड एंजाइटी 42% हैड डिप्रेशन ये लास्ट ईयर अक्टूबर में की थी 2000 दिस इज बिफोर द कोरोना हिट द हेल्थ सिस्टम एंड देन देयर वाज आल्सो एन एसोसिएशन दैट देयर वाज सुसाइडल आइडिएशन वाज वेरी कॉमन important sleep pattern problem. of the youth had sleep problem. medical students So again, this is the some of the data that we collected, and we were surprised at the high prevalence of depression, anxiety, sleep, suicide. Everything was there in the population, and we were extremely anxious about that. policy So what is required is uh, an understanding across the board that personality development. As, um, as important as getting grades. Our parents are totally focused they are not actually interested in their personality development. What kind of a person he is becoming, he could become the gold medalist and he would be useless in the work field. He would not be productive because he really has, doesn't have the skill to talk to someone, communicate with someone, actually manage a team. All these things are so important that we are not focused on this part. And this is equally important as compared to getting good grades as well. And this is something that we need to get across to the teachers and to the parents in general. Uh, some recommendation, uh, uh, mentorship on each uh, All students should have mentorship programs. Just make a senior unko guide kare unke, support kare unko, uh, a sensible senior I'm talking or professionals ke link hona unki screening honi lifestyle unko advice honi extra academic activities so important to develop your personality relationships achhi honi strong honi training of teachers all the teachers should be trained in mental health uh, no sec no second thoughts about that it doesn't cost anything it just costs a little bit they need to know and be aware of mental health issues and they must be trained in them and they must have basic counseling skills all the teachers should have I feel that is something we all can contribute to, we all can help in. Or it's make zada aapko budget ni chahiye, kush ni chahiye. Social media ko use karein. Just na inhone corona mein use kiya ki aap phone utaate hain and they start talking ki aap haath doein ye kare, wo kare. 
we can put in positive messages for the youth. We can put in uh, positive guidance for the youth on the social media. And then you'll need to look at curriculum. Usme bhi mental health and personality development We must put that in the schools so that the students are, uh, at a very early age are know about this and are able to understand that this is an important aspect of life. Ka. It is not just about getting uh, 80 out of 100, whatever A, B, C, whatever grade. Awareness programs for the families, for the students, for the teachers, for the population in general. Very, very crucial, very, very important. So final words, the youth must be prepared to deal with life matters with strength of character and develop healthy life skills, anger and stress management. They must realize that their actions will have consequences and their hard work and efforts will be rewarded. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Gee, thank you very much, Dr. Zwan. Uh, now we go to Ms. Arfa Subuhi. Um, thank you, Dr. Suhail. Um, uh, so let me th thank you for inviting me to this webinar. So right at the outset, let me clarify that uh, uh, my talk today um, is a practitioner's viewpoint and based uh, to a great extent on my interaction with the young civil servants who are inducted uh, through the process of CSS examinations. Um, so I spent, as Dr. Sohail initially said, um, quite a few years uh, in civil services academy, both as an instructor and then as the director general. And I also have the privilege of uh, uh, working uh, in public sector training institutions in, at, at all levels, really. Um, so as you're very well aware that um, um, uh, through the CSS examinations, the Federal Public Service Commission inducts officers and civil service to 12 uh, different services. And uh, once they are inducted, all of them have to go through a common training program at the Civil Services Academy, which is then followed up by a uh, specialized training program at the, at the various uh, training institutions. So I'll talk about um, three aspects of the topic that has been assigned to me, that is the psychological quality of youth. And, and I'm, I'm talking of the young people who are entering civil service as such. Um, so I'll give a few basic facts about the, about the young people who uh, joined the civil services. Um, then I'll talk about their attitudinal and mental health issues, which we have observed as uh, uh, faculty at training institutions. And lastly, I'll uh, deliberate on why, um, in my view, and that's a practitioner's viewpoint really, why the young officers exhibit uh, negative personality traits or attitudinal issues for that matter. Um, so a few words about the general profile of the civil servants uh, who are inducted um, in the civil service. So in the first place, the entrants are not very young. Uh, so if during the 1950s and 1960s, the average age of the successful candidates uh, through the CSS examination was 22 years or 23 years, um, now it is uh, 27 or 28 years. Um, uh, for the past few years, the average age is 27. Occasionally we have batches where 
the average age of the inductees is 29. Um, the current common training program that is being conducted at the Civil Services Academy, uh, the youngest uh, probationary officer is 23 years of age and the oldest is 33 years of age. So you can well imagine that the age at which they are joining um, the service is one where the attitudes and whatever their personality is has already been developed and it is difficult to bring about a change at that point in time. Um, so uh, a sizable chunk of the inductees in civil service have previous work experience in government or the private sector. And this is this generally ranges between 60 to 70%. This year, for example, 70% of those inducted in civil service have previous government experience, 32% have uh, experience of government, 38% have experience in the private sector. Um, 80 to 85% of the selectees join civil service after 16 years of education. Now this includes not only uh, people with master's degree or any other postgraduate degree, this also includes uh, candidates who have four years BA, BS uh, uh, programs or who have earned professional degrees like engineering or MBBS, which also um, requires uh, four to five years of uh, uh, education after uh, intermediate. So the interesting thing to note is that graduates of well-reputed uh, private sector universities like LUMS, like IBA, like NAST, um, that is on the rise since the past five years or so. And this year, 24% um, of the total intake in civil service uh, are graduates of these three institutions. 25 have joined from the LUMS, 23 have come from NUST, three from IBA, and traditionally um, uh, those um, who graduate from IBA, generally their numbers ranges between three to five, not more than, uh, not more than this. So during the 1950s and 60s, the vast majority of those joining the civil service belonged to the middle class um, and only 5% came from the lower middle class. Some 20% came from upper class. But over the years, if you look at the reports of the Federal Public Service Commission, the number of inductees from middle class has increased and the number of inductees from lower middle class is also on the rise. Um, and I think it's also important to say that since the last 10 years or so, the number of women selected through the CSS examination has also risen. Um, and for the past five years or so, uh, the percentage of women who join civil service is about 40%. Um, in certain batches, this even goes up to 45% or so. Um, now, if we come to the personality traits or the attitudinal and behavioral issues of those joining uh, civil service, um, um, I think at the very outset, I must, uh, uh, I think it's known to everybody that um, CSS candidates have to go through a psychologic, uh, psychological test, um, a different psychological test for that matter, to determine their personality traits and their general abilities. 
Um, but uh, you might know that the psychologists' reports are not binding on uh, the commission, which does look at them, but it has a discretion uh, to take its own decision based on uh, the interview and based on the written uh, uh, examination reports as such. So uh, the second thing is that these assessment reports, the assessment reports of those who are selected to civil service, they are never shared um, uh, with the Civil Services Academy or for that matter with the ministry. So it is as if we start from scratch um, uh, finding out about the uh, existing competencies or abilities of these people and their personality traits uh, as such. And we do that uh, during our, uh, during the training period, looking at their demonstrated performance and uh, their demonstrated attitudes. And based on my experience, I can say that the majority of the officers do demonstrate characteristics of being extroverts, of being quite confident, uh, of being sociable. Uh, but traits or abilities like leadership, um, like being willing workers um, uh, of a team, um, uh, of being open to new ideas and culture, emotional stability, or intellect that seeks out um, new knowledge, um, orderliness or diligence or commitment and conscientious uh, conscientiousness as Dr. Taj uh, uh, stated. Um, these are um, characteristics which are very variable. They, they vary from person to person. So one of the first things that we notice is lack of discipline amongst uh, the civil servants who are inducted. And by discipline, I'm, I mean, that's demonstrated not just uh, through absenteeism or lack of attention in classes or uh, um, being unpunctual to training activities, missing deadlines, et cetera. Um, so in, in training institutions, it is possible for the faculty to enforce uh, discipline in trainees by way of both positive and negative uh, reinforcement, uh, but at workplace, the officers very quickly adapt themselves to the organizational culture, and uh, which um, generally does not promote self-discipline. Um, in work, um, the officers or civil servants exhibit to a large extent a lack of diligence, a lack of industriousness, um, commitment to work or conscientiousness. Um, and, and as an example, I can tell you that most top achievers of the CSS examinations um, prefer to rest on their laurels. And it is as if uh, um, they have already attained the social recognition uh, that they wanted to achieve. And um, it's as if they really don't want to prove anything else. So in 2011, the Civil Services Academy conducted a study um, of, of uh, three batches from 2008 to 2010. So three batches falling within these years. 
And uh, one of the major reasons why we conducted the study was because we were noticing a great variance in the merit that was determined by the Federal Public Service Commission and the merit that we were coming up with based on the performance of the new uh, inductees uh, in civil service, uh, uh, based on the performance in the common training program in the training institution. So what we found was that only about 20% of the top 20, um, which comprises about 10% of the entire batch. So only about, uh, uh, only 20% of the top 20 position takers in the CSS examinations were able to remain within the first 20 in the common training program. And we also found that 66% of the top achievers um, in CSS had scored exceptionally well only in one subcomponent of the CSS examination because we were looking at the CSS examination having three subcomponents, you know, uh, people getting marks in mandatory papers and compulsory papers, uh, people, uh, the marks that score in optional papers and the marks that score in interview. And we found that the top achievers were doing exceptionally well in only one of these subcomponents. And one of the inferences that we made was that um, the top performers do not really exhibit, uh, uh, do not really have well rounded personalities. So, leadership ability is variable, but it generally improves during the common training uh, program or other training programs for that matter. But what is really lacking, and you find this in workplaces as well, is that people are not willing team members. They are not willing to put in uh, their best effort as a team member. Um, so in most group assignments that we give uh, during training, we find that the leaders are generally on their own and uh, if they are lucky, they'll get one or two members within their team who are willing to pull their weight. Um, so, as I said, this is an attitude that you find on display at the workplace as well. And we um, generally find only very, very few um, reliable or willing workers who also give their best to the organization that they work for. And the result is that generally it's such people or such civil servants are overburdened with work. Um, and since there are no negative repercussions for the non-performers, they get away with it. So there is also uh, generally a tendency not to be very methodical in work. So that while analyzing issues, I find that a broad brush treatment um, is adopted by civil servants and the details, the necessary details that you need to look at and that you need to analyze and examine that is missed out. So there's a tendency also to take the easy way out. If you can uh, Google something up, you will Google it without looking at uh, whether the information that you are coming up with is credible or not, whether it's credible research. So there's also um, a shirking of uh, hardcore research in, in uh, civil service. So without commenting on the intellectual ability of the officers, I would like to say um, that there is generally a lack of curiosity uh, to seek out new knowledge um, and, and to um, 
look at new and better ways of doing things in the public sector. So that is why, um, you know, uh, Dr. Nadeem Ulhaq just said that there is a lot of idleness, especially in public sector. There is, because I think um, that's something that the organizational culture really promotes. Um, increasingly, we are also noticing mental health issues in, in those inducted uh, in the civil service. And uh, we come across young officers who uh, have depression. At times, it is severe enough for them to share with the faculty um, that they are having thoughts, suicidal thoughts as such. Um, and um, when, they, when we discuss the, the, the issues with them, uh, it generally comes out that such officers have family issues or they come from broken homes or are under great stress for one reason or the other. Um, the attitudinal issues have also been on the rise and this, the mental health issues have become so great that for the past six years or so, the Civil Services Academy actually um, has been engaging um, uh, services of um, uh, psychologists to um, sort of give consultation to officers who seek such uh, consultation. Um, lately, the CSA has even uh, conducted psychometric tests of newly inducted officers through a panel of psychologists, and um, uh, they've also trained, um, to a certain extent, faculty of the CSA um, uh, to identify mental health issues uh, and how to engage with such officers. On rare occasions, um, some officers even had to be hospitalized because of uh, severe mental issues. Uh, um, I remember um, uh, one, one probationary officer who spent two months in the psychiatry ward of uh, CMH and uh, um, the report that we got, the medical report that we got, which we shared with, the, um, with, with his uh, uh, ministry uh, was that he simply cannot take stress. He incidentally had been recruited in the police service of Pakistan. So you, you, you do have um, such, such issues. And very occasionally, we are also coming across cases of drug abuse um, in, in training uh, institutions. So um, there are a number of reasons which cause this attitudinal, these attitudinal issues. I'm not talking about the mental health issues. I'm, I'm really talking about um, the phenomenon of idleness or the phenomenon of not being a willing worker, uh, of not um, uh, being industrious or diligent. Um, um, and, and I think that to a large extent, uh, this is caused by, um, by, by uh, the organizational culture that prevails in the public sector. And it is one which uh, demotivates um, uh, real workers. Um, uh, makes a lot of people cynical because they see that um, whether you work well or whether you are an average worker or a below average worker, you are being treated uh, the same way. Um, so um, it, what I'm trying to say is that the government's reward and punishment system is not one which encourages or motivates officers to 
demonstrate positive attitude or to be diligent or committed or thorough professionals. And if I look at, you know, just the training aspect of uh, human resource management, I can tell you that the rules which under which the interse seniority of officers is determined within their own occupational group is one where the maximum weightage is given to uh, CSS, to their performance in CSS examination and their subsequent performance in service uh, at the um, Civil Services Academy during the common training program at the uh, specialized training program or subsequently at the final pass out examination, uh, that is not great enough to overset um, uh, you know, the marks that they got at the CSS. So there's very little motivation to perform very well during the um, uh, during the training as such. Then also we have, of course, the performance evaluation reports, um, uh, which are fairly exaggerated. Uh, but despite that, I'll say that in the pen picture and in um, other, uh, uh, other parts of uh, the performance evaluation reports where we have to indicate uh, the strengths and the weaknesses of the officers and what kind of training is required. The unfortunate aspect is that these are never evaluated at, uh, uh, in, in the career planning wings of, of any ministry as such or any division as such. Uh, performance evaluation reports or training evaluation reports will be considered only at the time of promotion. So what is the use if, if the trainer or if the supervisor has indicated issues in attitude of that person in, in the way that he uh, works in, uh, in his personality traits, those are not going to be addressed during um, uh, work. And um, also that's one reason I feel that when um, the reforms uh, that, that, that have taken place uh, about retirement, compulsory retirement after 20 years may run into problems because if a person has not been counseled on what his weaknesses are, and if the, the ministries or the divisions have not invested in his training, uh, helping him overcome those weaknesses, I think it's going to be difficult when that person goes, uh, takes his compulsory retirement uh, to a court. Um, then deviations to good behavior are rarely penalized. The most common punishment being transfer. So um, departments don't invest in helping officers overcome their capacity issues. Um, Penal action is not taken on unacceptable or unprofessional attitude. And this has a snowball effect since it gives a signal to others uh, that in government, non-professional behavior is tolerated and there is no premium to hardcore professional work. And I think this is a great reason for the cynicism that we find in the young officers when they say that nothing is really going to change. And even if we work, but it, it isn't going to make any difference in the system. And because of that, you do find um, um, a number of people who are creative, who um, have joined civil service to make a change. You see them leaving civil service quite early on in their careers as well. Um, I'd just like to say uh, lastly, 
one word about the growing number of women um, in civil service. And I feel that uh, because a number of women who uh, joined uh, civil service during the common training program, they outperformed their male colleagues. Um, but when they go to their workplaces, a number of them are already married. Some of them do get married. And I keep get getting this feedback from my male colleagues in civil service that um, uh, there are problems um, in, in, in work and especially the the political bosses not really wanting to work with a female officer who's been posted in field positions. So I, I believe there are, apart from the fact that because when they get married, it's difficult to juggle, uh, you know, to balance out uh, their family commitments with uh, their professional commitments. I think also there are a number of biases which are still at play. Uh, at workplaces. Um, so these were just a few thoughts that I had about the subject. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. P. Very, very good. I really appreciate what you said. And this is, uh, I think we need to get you to do a bigger seminar with us because I've never seen a civil servant being that honest about its service. And quite frankly, I think the, the, the large amount of problems come from this uh, training that we have, where we give a sense of um, entitlement to these people and that sense of entitlement then permeates to society. So it's a cultural thing that we have here. Um, there's a book on culture that <clears throat> I recently read, Joseph Hendrick, and he says that culture is a strong determinant of even evolution. But our culture is one of idleness and our culture is one of self-entitlement and our culture is one of, um, you know, so I don't know what we can do in this. So I'll turn to Javed Hassan, who is do, the chairman of NAVTEC, doing a lot of skill training, a very vocal Twitter um, uh, colleague. Javed Sab, over to you. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, I was going to, my title was going to be a old Rolling Stone song. I don't know if you've heard it. Uh, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometime, you get what you need. Probably that's true for my particular talk as well. You probably won't get what you want. Uh, I don't know if you'll get what you need as well, but uh, let's see. But this is generally the case also with the labor market here. Uh, basically, neither is the industry getting what it wants, not necessarily uh, even if, if what, it, 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 what the students need. And, and, and there's a huge amount of issues here which need to be addressed. One of the key things to realize is that there are about 4 million young people entering the labor market every year. Of these, only about uh, 700,000 enter the university stream and about 400,000 get any formal training. So Nadeem's question that why should the state be involved in training? Of the 4 million, less than 1 million are getting any form of training. So the state is actually very negligibly involved. Where it is involved, where there's this NAFTAC has been involved in a number of uh, schemes, of youth training schemes, and I'll, I'll really focus on that. And these are uh, as a way of SOP of trying to say what we are doing for youth. Uh, I, it's questionable how effective they have been, uh, but let's talk about earlier schemes. There have been two schemes earlier, which have been 100,000 each, and they've been really designed from the top. 
they've come from basically on a basis that central planner government knows what is best what should be trained who should be trained what courses should be given and we direct the institute the teftas to get uh, so many students in uh, plumbing so many students as welders so many students as electricians uh, there is some nominal linkage with the industry and um, it's very often based on the capacity in the uh, training institutes whether it's welding plumbing whatever you have these traditional skills uh, there is little consideration for what the students themselves want or what the youth particularly would care to learn but we have a capacity that has to be utilized and the government knows best that has been the traditional approach to to sk skilling youth um, and it's very much capacity driven it's very much central planning it's very much uh, about what we know best and what you should learn uh, what we have found traditionally is that for you know for 100000 spaces uh, we have found it difficult uh, or the data is it has been difficult to even fill that capacity very often one is going around villages towns trying to get the capacity filled in and reluctantly you have this youth coming in to these to these these uh, institutes for getting the training whether it's in plumbing electricians uh, whatever it is and having uh, been enrolled you have a high level of uh, dropouts uh, traditionally it has been as high as 20 30% in some courses as high as 50% so the government has basically gone around deciding what to train and sort of really commandeered have rounded up youth to come and get trained they have started the courses and then basically dropped out so in a in a sort of uh, ob oblique manner you have got an idea what the uh, motivation was of those kids coming to uh, train in this place they were essentially not motivated and not particularly excited about doing what they were being asked to do and uh, so the other point was once they were actually certified trained what was the what amar durani said deploy deployability deployability i can't pronounce that word so i, I use the word employability uh, basically whether they were employed or used their own skills to gain uh, sort of uh, uh, some sort of revenue we found that of these trained less than 60% were getting uh, uh trade in some cases as low in some institute as low as 40% so first you have 30% dropouts then you have of those who have stayed less than 60% uh, are actually getting uh, economically engaged uh, having learned these skills so there's a high wastage and i think that's a, a proxy for seeing how motivated they are and how um interested they were in in learning whatever was being taught to them um so this time round it was decided we will have another prime minister's youth trading scheme which is called kamyab jawan and the assumption we started off uh, basically that central planning doesn't know best we do not know what the youth know that was the first premise the second premise was we do not know what's good for them third we also made a premise that we do not know where they should be getting the jobs and let's start with that premise which is a 
difficult one for a po policymaker because policymakers normally start by assuming that they know so many things. And if you start with a pre premise where you don't know what, how do you actually design a, a, a program? So the, the basis of this designing this pro program was we will train about 100,000 youth, skill them, but we will, the underlying assumption would be in, uh, in, 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 in allocating the resources to various institutes that there should be 80% employability. And I'm, the word I'm using that because it's easier for me to pronounce is deployability. It's employability means whether they get jobs with a company or they use the skills to get their jobs themselves, it is all fine. So long as they use those skills to earn something out of it. And that, that was the really the basis of it. Uh, and, 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 and what we asked was the institutes that we will allocate you say 50 or 100 or 60 youth or in a particular training course, depending on the demand you can get from the youth. Uh, and, and, and we will not restrict you to plumbing, traditional courses. You can get artificial intelligence, coding, internet of things, cloud computing, plumbing, uh, cooking, whatever it is, you feel that you can get the greatest demand from, from youth. Uh, now, the, 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 the one criteria we said, we, would, we will have this done in number of tranches. So those institutes that do extremely well, well in terms, because we'll have tracer studies, which will do extremely well, will actually get more in the second tranche. So in the first tranche out of the 100,000, we, we started off with uh, 20,000. Now, the interesting thing was there was all there were some traditional courses being offered, uh, but there was a lot of new courses that came through, which we had not thought about. We also found out there were some really inter interesting institutes. We had, you know, things like, as I said, Internet of Things, cloud computing, uh, CAD, uh, uh, high-end uh, beautician treatment, uh, various things. They all all came about. Now, one of the key things why we were keen that we, we should see the demand of what the students want to learn is because we, as Nadeem said, we don't want to be in the business of training ourselves. If there's sufficient demand being created by these students, that's a proxy for knowing what, the, what kind of jobs are available and what the students or young youth want to do. And moreover, if once, depending on what the employability is later on, if it is seen as being successful, they will naturally gen generate demand later on. It would not be required that the state keeps having to uh, subsidize this. We can give some. So this should be just as a, uh, as, a, as a way to get it catalyzed as a catalyst rather than as something that goes on forever. For these, initially of the 100,000 spaces, we opened up 20,000 uh, places. And this was the first tranche which was in February this, uh, and we got 210,000 applications. Now, please remember, in the previous uh, design courses, we were getting less than the number that was advertised. This time, for every space, we were getting 10 applicants. Interestingly, a lot of the applicants were MSCs in computing, BSCs in engineering, 
And the question that each, each uh, student, each youth who was applying was asked, why is he doing? One of the key things was about a motivation. Why do you want to do this particular course? We are not interested in just training for the sake of training. You have to de demonstrate why would you be interested in. And the key was actually was the fact is that they could get jobs if, if, if the, many of them said if we had done this particular certification, there was a job available in the Middle East or somewhere else where they could have got jobs. Now, I don't know how far that will come true because this is still ongoing, but one of the things that happened after a few weeks of starting the courses, uh, the, the basically COVID struck and after six weeks of training, uh, it, it, it basically had to be closed down, unfortunately. And in October this year, we started again these courses and we were expecting a large number of dropouts. Of the 20,000 that were approached, we had already, only taken, because we were only taking those people who we thought would be motivated, we took 17,000. Of those 17,000, only 1,000 have dropped out. Now, again, remember, in the previous design courses, there was something like 30% dropouts. In this particular case, after five months or six months of hiatus, only 1,000 out of 17,000 dropped out. It just gives some idea that there is a high level of um, interest in what they are doing. And, and, and the, moreover, there was, while there was COVID, there was a regular barrage of uh, questions and demand from these students that they should, uh, they, they, sh they would want to continue the course and we should reopen it as quickly as possible. Now, the point I'm trying to make is there's been a lot of talk here about youth not being interested, demotivated, mentally disabled, et cetera, et cetera. My view is we're probably going about it the wrong way. We, we as institutes, as policymakers, try and assume what we know is best for the youth. Let's not assume that. Let's not assume that we know what they should be learning, how they should be learning it. Let's try and design stuff as, in the manner where they can learn. The world is full of new opportunities. There are all sorts of new trades coming. And if we try and to a certain degree cater to what their needs are, what they would want to do, there's a greater chance of getting them motivated or interested. Uh, that sense of idleness is less likely if we actually respond to their uh, world vision as it may be. And let's not assume that their world vision is good or bad. Let's not have any judgmental analysis about how they should be thinking. And there is a strong, I noticed in the talks earlier, there is a strong sort of, I hate to say, moral stance about how the youth should be. Let's, my view is let's try and cut away from that. Let's assume that the youth is as a rational being and will be given the right incentives, will actually respond to them, to that. And rather than trying to teach, so even in the courses, rather than trying to teach them morality, ethics, we have tried to move away from that. What we have tried to do is that if you do this, this, there is this chance of getting a job. If you do that, there is this opening potentially there. You must learn the skill. This is what this skill will learn to. It is not about, there is obviously workplace uh, cooperation. There's all sorts of views about how, and what we're finding is many of these, People are already getting, starting to get engaged in the workplace through freelancing with going and trying to work. So because there's a continuous monitoring process, 
Now I have to say this is just an experiment. It's a if you want, randomized controlled trial if you want. Uh, even though that that is a uh, controversial topic right now. We have right now done you know seventeen thousand. We'll hopefully roll out at the end of this five to six months. We'll see how, what the employability is. Uh, but the critical thing is a lot of these students. We asked them. Many of them felt. the university courses they went to were a waste of time they felt they could have done much better if they had been learning uh, short term courses four years of university did not necessarily give them skills which actually demotivated them it was a huge waste of time if you can imagine if you are 17 18 and you have four years of doing something which you are not particularly interested in or where you don't feel any immediate rewards uh, i would get de de demotivated despite all the best of advantages so uh, there is a, we need to be asking ourselves what are we doing with this youth to get them demotivated let's not assume that they are intellectually challenged or they are backwards let's actually think put it on ourselves are we responding to the youth in the manner where they they actually feel that they should be motivated so these are some of the points this is a test i like to say it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's an experiment that is going on Uh, i can't say we are successful yet we'll have to see what what the outcomes are after the six months see what the employability deployability economic engagement is uh, hopefully it will be more than 80% that was our benchmark uh, if we do that we need to further test it we need to promote those areas where there's greater demand further uh, but i i i i you know the premise of this discussion was idleness uh mental incapacity uh mental disability there might be that there, i'm sure but there is a huge issue of how traditionally at least in my particular area which is skills training how it was being undertaken in the manner it was being undertaken it was sure to make people demotivated uh idle and 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 mentally uh harmed uh it, we were certainly working towards that and and what we needed to do and we are trying to do is see how we can change that i'm not sure we have achieved that but i think the greater onus is on us as policy makers to see how we are treating our youth and how we are motivating them or enabling them to achieve their aspirations than necessarily trying to say what is wrong with the youth uh, with that i'll i'll stop uh, but it, this is a ongoing trial and 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 you know i'm 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 quite happy to Uh, take criticism if we don't get it right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Javed sir. Thank you very much. I think we've had great talks. Wonderful. I've learned a lot. I'm very happy with this webinar. Thank you, Amir. Thank you, Safdar. But Safdar sir, let me just come back to you very quickly. This whole stunting thing, I find it a little difficult to understand. Are you telling me that Pakistan is a mentally challenged nation? if so then i'd like to go to rizwan taj sir doctor sir to tell us if you are a mentally challenged nation what can we do because i find it this premise to begin with i find it very difficult that the whole nation is mentally challenged the whole nation is stunted i find that very bizarre but nevertheless if that's so then i'll turn to doctor rizwan taj but sir sir first can you confirm are you are we mentally challenged ji uh, about different perspectives i edit a journal and uh, i received received an article from ireland a pakistani origin author which i've sent in the review process and 
Its title is uh, Evolving Colonialism, and the author suggests that the impacts of colonialism are with us. And uh, the author, in a very rough way, suggests that we are almost all of us have mental problems, which are a legacy of the uh, colonial experience. So, uh, what I wanted to say was that this is a very, very complex uh, issue. Uh, Dr. Zvantaj uh, has spoken partly about it, but in the lower you see, stunting, how many percentage of the children face stunting? About 40% of the working class or lower strata of the society. And there, the science tells us that nutrition is linked with the uh, IQ as well as emotional balance. So okay. that link is, uh, in, in my opinion, is very much well established that nutrition has very clear linkages with the mental health. The rest, I think Dr. Zwan Taj can- uh, Dr. Zwan Taj, we are a mentally challenged nation. So why don't we just fold up and say, okay, fine. We are now, IQ is low. We are totally zero. What should we do? I mean, I, and secondly, I'd also like to point out, you know, this thing that we make too much of abuse, et cetera, et cetera. When I go back in history and I look at Alexander the Great, for example, or Tariq bin Walid, or, um, you know, all these famous Shelley, characters. Keats, no. uh, you name it, all the painters. Characters, those guys went out, conquered the world. And when I read history, many of them were abused. Many of them were physically abused. It was common in those days. So what gives that we don't have the mental fortitude to do that today? And we're sitting there complaining, oh, you know, I had this in my past and I'm so mentally challenged, etc." cetera. Dr. Sir, is psychology also making us weak? Okay, um, right. Um, when we talk about us being mentally challenged or stunted, uh, that applies only to a certain proportion of the population, not to the whole of Pakistan. And it's not just Pakistan, it's the rest of the world as well. Uh, you have countries uh, which are overpopulated, which have these nutritional problems, which you have the birth-related uh, factors, birth injury-related factors. You have the early, the early childhood problems, illnesses, meningitis, everything else, which contributes to the stunting part. But you must understand that is only a certain proportion of the population. It has nothing to do with the whole of Pakistan, and we should not probably project this kind of uh, um, message across. Uh, and again, uh, as I've said, um, uh, this is common in the poor people who are not able to get a, it's also diet related. Absolutely, Sardar Sahib is right about that. If you do not get a proper diet in childhood, uh, there is a likely to be uh, physical deformity or physical size problems or brain size problems. Again, limited to the very poor strata of society uh, in the, we, we here sitting in Islamabad can only imagine how, what a person in the, in rural sense how she delivers a child, how she has five, 10 kids and she has no way to feed them. She and the, the obstetric services are so poor and so uh, <clears throat> deficient that it is horrifying to see uh, how things are. But this is not about just Pakistan, it's all the poor countries across the world. Bangladesh maybe a year. Historically, historically, many people have risen out of that. I know John D. Rockefeller, for example, was very poor. 
and he managed to conquer the world. There are so many examples of that. I think quite frankly, now there's a culture in Pakistan that we tend to give up. We say, oh, you know, this stunting has happened, this has happened, so we should give up. The problem is, where does this idleness problem? I'll give you another example. I run a small university. I can't get these youth, I was just talking to them in the chat, I can't get them to even attend a webinar. They feel they can't attend a webinar. I can't get them to read a book. Now this has become very common in our culture. It's got nothing to do with stunting or whatever. We've got a culture, and then we'll go to RFA and BB. It emanates from the top of society. There's a sense of entitlement at the top of society. And everybody lives with a sense of entitlement. So why should anybody struggle? Absolutely. Um, the, uh, the challenge is that how to motivate people to develop a very broad perspective to life. Mm. Here, what happens is uh, when I look at uh, colleagues and everybody else, 80% of their life revolves around their job, including their social occupational, so social life, including their personal life. And very few people are actually uh, interested in other areas that you mentioned. And uh, that is one of the challenges of lifestyle advice that we need to inculcate from a very early childhood. And that is the challenge here. Now, um, RFI has given you a very uh, broad vision about the civil service. And of course, I'm also part of uh, the government structure and we have very serious problems with them. And we see these people who think that they are uh, in control of everything and they are decision makers and well, we as professionals are nobody to challenge what they decide. And the section officer in grade 17 is more powerful than I am. And he thinks he can just block everything and not worry about it. And then you have got the senior people who only are interested in what they can get out of the system. So this, the culture problem is always there. So uh, I will just come back to the, uh, the whole uh, seminar that we are conducting. We need to address this from the childhood onwards. And we need to address the childhood factors and then start from there and how we can motivate and uh, create a culture where the child uh, develops a positive, strong personality and is able to not just work or not just do that, but also develop other interests in life, which are equally important. So, uh, you can't do that change. Once they reach the civil service, they are actually the personalities formed. When you reach your 23, 22, 23, 24, you really uh, cannot change that much. Then you have to look at other factors, how to change your behavior, how to see, uh, look at things which can be changed. So it is the, the problem lies in the childhood, early childhood onwards, where we can make uh, some interventions that would be extremely helpful and would certainly pay off in the long run. And that is where we are uh, really deficient and we are lacking. So that is the answer to the question that you have. Okay, thank you. Arifa Bibi, thank you very much. You made a very, very good presentation, um, I think. I invite you to give us your paper. We would like to publish it in the PID or whatever data you have. We'd like to talk to you about that. We will do that off this, but let me ask you very quickly, Alpha Bibi. Is civil service training, the way Lord Macaulay did it, 
is this something that we should put in the past? Should we get rid of this civil service training? I've gone and talked there many times. I've asked many of the participants mm. this question. How many books do you read? And they tell me they don't read any books at all, right? I, I get, I talk to your lecturers. They say the sense of entitlement is so deep, they don't want to learn anything. When you ask them to read anything, they don't want to read anything. So the question that I'm coming to is very simple. Can we solve this problem without a civil service reform? Because civil service sits at the top of society, it controls everything as the Dr. Saab said. I didn't want to ask the Dr. Saab, but Dr. Saab said it himself. The civil service controls everything. The merit system is the civil service system in this country. You join the civil service, you're there. If you don't join the civil service, you're not. Can we progress without a civil service reform? Um, no, we can't. But um, you see, one thing is very obvious to me that civil service reform has to take care of the entire human resource value chain as such. It's not just concentrating upon training or recruitment or promotions. You've got to look at the whole, um, whole thing as such. And I, I think the problem with um, training really is, uh, A, that we don't have quality training in institutions. Um, people join uh, training institutions um, because they are out of favor. Um, uh, to be very honest, um, it's as, as Director General of Civil Services Academy, as DG of NIM, as uh, Chief Instructor at Senior Management Wing, I can tell you that I had great difficulty um, attracting really good civil servants who were role models in my view to come and join the civil service, uh, to, to come and join the training institutions and to bring about a change because training institutions are not considered the main the mainstream institutions at all so anybody who spends a lot of time at training institutions like i did will certainly not be considered a successful officer uh, as such you talked about uh, uh, you know the sense of entitlement and that starting from the training institutions and i will not uh, rebut it i will not rebut it despite the fact that I think um, training institutions do try not to inculcate this, but when I send out, for example, when I send out my trainees to, uh, uh, for field trips in different districts, they are treated uh, like royalty by the deputy commissioner, uh, by the superintendent of police, and this, this despite the fact that uh, from the uh, training institution side, we always tell them that they have to be treated like ordinary citizens, that they will pay for their own lodging, they will pay for their own uh, food intake, etc. Uh, despite that, you know, um, the, the, the way they are treated uh, gives them the feeling that they are apart from the citizenry, that they, they have been recruited, uh, you know, to serve. So um, why call us civil servants? I mean, we should be public servants as such, change the nomenclature completely. Um, I, I've always felt that civil servants are rarely civil and they are certainly not servants. Thank you, thank you. Javisab, you face probably the same dilemma I do. Merit does not prevail in this society. There is absolutely no merit. 
And I feel I'm creating PhDs and MPhils who are going to rot in life. They're going to go nowhere. You're probably creating skills, skills that are not necessary, that nobody wants. I'd much rather get a plumber who's got no skills because, hey, I can't, I don't want to pay market prices. So the question is when merit doesn't prevail, what are we trying to do? Are we just training people because we feel good about it? Or is there a purpose to this? You know, can I just answer the uh, earlier question about- okay. Whatever you like. Uh, about uh, people feeling entitled yeah. and uh, you know, civil servants behaving in a certain way. I, if I may, I'm, just as a positive view, hmm. if the entire incentive mechanism within the society is such that uh, you feel entitled and you feel uh, you should command rather than be a public servant, why should you not behave that way? As a rational being, one responds to the entire incentive system within the overall mechanism. One cannot divorce oneself from the overall system. So my, my point is that we often say we can train them, you can send them to Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, uh, send them 10 years in investment banking. But if he comes within this system, he will behave within that because the incentive structures are such that they are, your, your, your best rewards are, behave, uh, are to adapt yourself to the system rewards. So I think, you know, I don't think the trainings are, is that much of an issue. With regards to your earlier, your question specifically to me, uh, we, by and large, the forced training that we were doing was generally a waste of money. You know, this business, oh, we need to train 30,000 plumbers without necessarily deciding what the, by and large, the plumbers should decide, want to be plumbers themselves. They really should be driven by their own motivation. We should not be central planners deciding what, how many plumbers, how many welders, how many, that's not how it happens in Germany, doesn't, doesn't happen in most developed markets. Really the skills should be driven by the market needs, by, by the young people themselves deciding what they want to do. They might know something which industry right now might not know. So they might want to learn skills, which we may not think are necessarily useful now, but they will get somewhere. You know, the gaming skill in Korea is one of the biggest industries. Now, if we had, they had relied on their parents to de determine whether gaming should be done, most of these kids would not be in the gaming industry. They have come about because they wanted to do it. They probably hid from their parents and went and did it. So my point is there is too much, too much uh, governmental decision-making in skills training. If I may sort of indirect, we should be very wary of what we can do. And, and whatever intervention we do, we should be a bit modest about it. And at best we are experimenting. At, at best we should try and be catalysts to allow the young people to discover what they can best deploy themselves and industry to match them. That's really what, you know, trying to you know, train 200,000, 500,000 and all that, while it may feel very good as a government official to do that, and it gives us brownie points, that should not be our fundamental role. What we should be doing is really seeing what the, how, the, how, how the, the young can actually deploy their skills, where they might want to learn, and how the industry might be able to utilize. That should be our intermediary role, should be much more than necessarily forcefully training people. If I, if, I don't know if I've answered your question, but that's, fair point, that's really fair, fair point. Amir Durani, Amir Durani, I'd like to ask you very simply, 
you are an entrepreneur, young entrepreneur. I tell most of the kids who have done anything at all, kids who are studying overseas or kids who are going to study overseas, I tell them, stay there, don't come back. I say that with a heavy heart, but I say that. So don't come back, this country is not ready for you because this country has no respect for merit. Like Dr. Nadeem, Dr. Taj just now said, there is no respect for merit. A doctor, for example, retires in grade 20, an engineer retires in grade 20, and most of our kids know the incentive system in this country that you can do whatever you like. The incentive system is so skewed that you will not be able to do anything. You can only succeed if you migrate. In that environment, do you blame the kids for being idle or for taking on this mantle that, hey, if I join something that gives me a sense of entitlement, that's okay, which is basically a government job because outside government, there is nothing. Entrepreneurship is very difficult in this country. You've tried it. So tell us, what are you telling the youth that there, are, there is opportunity in this country, Amit? Okay, Nadeem Sahib, I think I'll, I'll start off with the one basic thing. Look, high risk translates to high opportunity. So it's a bit like saying that if I'm asked to build a pipeline in Pakistan and I'm asked to build a pipeline in the middle of post 9-11 in Afghanistan, yes, the risks will be high going to Afghanistan, but I am the kind of individual that will choose Afghanistan because I know that that, that risk comes with rewards. So high risk, high rewards. This is one of the reasons why I think that Pakistan is definitely the place to be. Um, I also think that much of the mantra of going west, um, you know, the, I always compare this to the west of the imagination, which is Gotsiman and Gotsiman, you know, the definer of the American move west, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the herdsman and, you know, the, basically the frontiersman. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, eventually when you go there, you find that the youth settles for a, uh, a mediocrity of sorts and you know the exceptions of our youth going there and making it big like the, my our friends like Dr. Adil Najam you, you know yourself if I can count that or a few of us you know who either but if you by and large I mean they're going there for a life which is nothing but basically a daily nine to five grind now that to me is not the future of work so I think that my second posit is that those people who think that they'll go settle there get a mortgage $100,000 in debt, uh, everything. It's just not a life that is the future of 21st century and what the youths need to be heading towards. I think this was something which is, and if I may use a very loose term, and I'm sorry, I always give you very layman analogies, but you know, in the 70s, let me tell you this. I mean, in the 70s, when I was going to school, the thought of actually going west was on, even for education below, uh, let's say, a master's was never considered, right? In fact, those people went abroad in bachelors who could not meet the merit in our country and could not get into the best institutions. So I think the second point I want to make is that, you know, this whole thing about migration is as much about idleness as it is about anything else, because I think it's the idle youth who think that they will go there and get an opportunity, but once they go there, they get stuck, then they come home and tell you rosy stories. But I think that by and large, it is the idle youth that wants to go abroad. Uh, and the, you know, that's my own reading. Yes, we, we all think that, you know, uh, and, and you know, I'll stop on that one, but answering your third thing that, you know, what is an entrepreneur, to be very honest, I think the whole thing about youth and entrepreneurship is very misleading 
And I want to say that very openly that, you know, the average age of an innovator entrepreneur is above 40. I mean, you can read McKenzie, you can read all the books around the world, you will know that. So essentially what I'm what I'm saying and my message in idleness is that really the creative part where you build or you, you decide and you acquire the skill sets that make you an entrepreneur is the youth. It's that 15 to uh, 29, the age which we are basically forming. Like you form your personality until you are 15, you form your professional personality and you acquire all the skills that are needed to be deployable. And it's not that difficult to pronounce it. Um, so, but basically, the, I find the ba basic difference is that we are creating, and I think my last point that I want to leave with you is that because we are creating an employment mindset is why youth are also going abroad, because they're going there because they still find massive job opportunities. So I'll stop there. It's not been a very cogent answer, but, you know, it's getting very late. So sorry about that. But basically, what you're saying is there's opportunity in Pakistan. Yes, because it's a high-risk environment. I mean, it makes sense. Very good. But yet at the same time, Ahmed Durrani, the Supreme Court and CDA throughout all the Khokhas in Islamabad, at the same time, the CDA and the Supreme Court throughout all youth hostels in Pakistan, at the same time, the Supreme Court has thrown out every youthful activity in every city of Pakistan. Is that an opportunity? Yeah, I mean, there are two, two answers to that, Nadeem. So the first one is, yes, that's exactly opportunity. That's why we have the likes of uh, Malik Riyaz, right? Because everyone, while everyone was being thrown out, he, he found the opportunity. So again, I say high risk, high opportunity. Okay. Now, second part to your answer is that num is basically that I think we define opportunity very limited. To us, opportunity is making money. Opportunity is getting a good, I don't know. Uh, where is the value creation? So to me, for example, Anybody who rises to get uh, the, the, the whole system about, let's say, you know, getting COCAs fixed, get, getting the tax system fixed, getting the judicial system, the laws fixed, that's entrepreneurship. And I think that's what we, we are losing sight of. So to me, for example, the biggest entrepreneur right now and not going smoke up, you know, where is you. And I think the youth should understand that because you are actually taking the largest risk and you're making the youth realize that it's not just about making money. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, again, this boils down to a very boring subject, but I think some of us want to talk about that, mm -hmm. which is what is growth? Uh, what is, does quality of life translate to growth or does money and GDP translate to quality of life? Mm -hmm. I think the answers are very difficult. So for, for a lot of youth, I think it's time to get out of this conundrum, this, this sort of uh, desperation, uh, the, the desire to be suicidal, drugs, everything. And there is nothing, uh, so I'm sorry, there's nothing Calvinistic about my diatribe, uh, David. Uh, I'm not saying, yes, we should be able to do everything. But I think opening the doors to the mind, the mind door of the youth, to saying, hey guys, you know, you still make a difference if you just start, for example, a, 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 a spawn and enable all Kogawalas and find a new law that CDA can't displace them. So, you know, that's, that's my view, sir. Okay, thanks. Khuram Shabir sir. Got a question, Khuram Shabir sir, would you like to ask? Khuram Shabir is not here. Oh, he's there. Go ahead, Khuram yes, sir. Hello, Assalamu alaikum. Yes. I just want to ask the panelists that the next era is the era of artificial intelligence. Jobs would be done by intelligent machines. 
so like um, this will induce like i think more uh, idleness so how, how do you see this i mean like like uh, would this create like problems or like what and is there any solution to it <laughs> thank you sir Okay. Anybody else? Any other question, or should I go back to the panel? There's a judge. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead, judge sir. Judge Minhas sir. Thank you, doctor. In our private sector, the curriculum of our training courses is outdated. not according to the need of the current industry and job market b many institution in public and private many training institution in public and private sector do not have requisite machinery and equipments in functional conditions which are necessary to impart technical skill to their training their practical classes are not held and the exams are not practical exams are not taken as required but they are producing the technical graduates technical diploma <coughs> holders certificate are given to them and it is compromising the quality of technical training and job opportunities for the youth my question is why authorities and tabtas are not taking notice of this situation in real terms thank you thank you ikramul haq sahab you want to say something you written something in chat go ahead ikramul haq sahab are you there doc sahab I don't think he's there. Okay, Muhammad Khalid, Mahmud Khalid, sorry, Mahmud Khalid, Mahmud Khalid. Oh, sir, thank you. Uh, it has been a very enlightening uh, discussion. My simple query to the panel is that uh, normally the risk is good for future success, but always we look for some kind of a fallback option. so do you think that in a society in which uh, every bread earner has to secure uh, for his family education health and these sort of things they would always play with a very risk averse kind of a behavior so uh, whether it pertains to going into civil service and become an i kind of a dead wood or taking some other kind of a job in which the rents are there so if in a society we can develop the fallback options in the form of social protection not just related to very severe kind of conditions but ordinary education health facilities maybe then the people would be willing to take risk and they are going to do what they really uh, love to do okay great okay folks let me go back to the panel kya kehte hain um rfb would you like to start any reactions to these thing any last thoughts so we can close arfa saboi ji ji 
Um, just a couple of points which were raised, one about curriculums of training institutions being outdated, although the uh, uh, questioner, the person who posed the question was referring to technical skills, but I think it's uh, uh, not, uh, I, I can't comment about NAPTEC, but certainly about public sector training institutions uh, uh, imparting a kind of common training program, whether it is at the civil services academy or other institutions, I um, tend to agree to a certain extent, but I think that in the past few years, um, there has been uh, a very concerted effort to uh, change not only the curriculum, but also the way we are imparting uh, training. And, uh, um, you know, looking at the data, the big data that is being generated and how it is to be analyzed, how it is to be used um, uh, while formulating policy is something which, which, which is being at this point in time taught um, at the training institutions in partnership with the uh, Harvard University. Um, so while changes are taking place, I think that um, um, certainly a lot needs to be done uh, about risk aversion uh, why you know we should um, uh, take risks um, I, I do tend to agree with the earlier views that mr durrani um, expressed and i think that uh, um, that's something that i find in civil service as well people getting comfortable in their own zones and not um, you know, moving out of it and seeking challenges, whether it's on the pretext of uh, um, NAB coming down on them or whatever. But I think that not only your own personal growth, uh, but also um, making organizations in the public sector better can come about only if one challenges oneself. Uh, I, I, I think that 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 is so so important, and and invariably I feel that when you challenge yourself, um, uh, you may not get um, the entire thing that you aimed at, but certainly something good does come about. Thank you, thank you, uh, Dr. Javed Hassan Saab. Would you like to say any last words? Answer these questions. Javed, Javed gone? Uh, I'm here. Go ahead. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there was this uh, comment about the skill courses not being up to date and out of fashion and probably not relevant. Probably very true. All of it, absolutely true. Total rubbish. Get rid of them. Uh, but it won't make the slightest bit, bit of difference. We can get the most up to date and we are trying to get the most up to date. We are getting competency-based trading. We're getting the newest courses from all the world, but frankly speaking, it will make the slightest bit of difference. It won't make too bit of difference. Basically, if you have an overall system where the greatest rewards are by getting 16% dollar returns on IPPs or some fixed tariff on some fertilizer factory or some very overall system is working on a rentier mechanism, why the hell do you need any skills? The skills, in Vietnam are not being driven because they have a fantastic TVET system. They have a, because they have an economic system which is demanding skills. And once you demand skills, 
the skills automatically start happening. So let's 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 get away from this delusion illusion that we have fantastic institutes and we get them right curriculum and we get them the right trainers and all of a sudden there will be skilled people and they'll start producing Pakistan's productivity will start going up. It won't happen. Let's be honest. Until we get rid of a basically a rentier economy where there is very little reward for being skilled, why should one get skilled? So, and where they are getting skilled, where there is interentism. One of the sectors which there is a lot of demand, where which we have seen a lot of focus, where people are coming themselves, which I've sort of alluded to, is the IT sector. So many of these kids who are learning uh, cloud computing, they are very motivated. They are not suffering from idleness. They are not suffering from mental incapacity. They are not suffering from all this because this is an area with where the skills are rewarded. So they are coming, learning a bit of cloud computing, getting uh, freelance jobs. They are uh, making uh, 50,000, 100,000, some of them 3 lakh rupees, and they're very happy. They're, they don't even probably suffer from depression. They probably go and have a good time. Now, it is about incentive mechanisms in the system. So I'm sorry, I'm probably the only one here who's deviating from this theme that we should do some nice things and train them nicely and have good courses. My, if the overall system does not promote skill seeking, there won't be skill seeking. We can talk as much and we can have all these nice webinars and talk about these wonderful things. But frankly speaking, if the overall system actually mitigates against uh, skill seeking, against uh, utilizing your full facilities, you can be the Einstein of this world. Einstein didn't happen because he was uh, a brilliant person. He was in a particular environment where there was a need for that kind of thinking. So I think we should think about that for a second. And very often, I, yes, I take it on board that NAFTEC is changing the curriculum. It is going towards competency-based. It is going towards better training. We have a whole reform program. But if the overall mechanism does not require skills people, there will be no need. It won't be very useful. Sorry. Well said, well said, well said. Thank you very much. Well said. This is exactly why I tell kids to go overseas and not stay here. Because <laughs> merit, the market merit does not prevail here. But we'll get to that soon. But I appreciate what you said. You made the point far better than I did. We'll come to you, Amit, just one second. Dr. Saab, Dr. Taj Saab, your last words, your thoughts? Um, I think um, I think it's a really enlightening discussion that I have learned a lot of things today, and I fully agree with Javed Saab and what his observations are. But uh, for Pakistan to survive and thrive, we have to make some changes. We have to do something about that. Mm -hmm. And my feeling is that if we start at a very early level and we start looking at the young children in the school and we look at ways to encourage them to continue their education and we look at the personality factors and i'm not talking about very complicated things i'm talking about basic stuff about life skills lifestyle interventions that we can train them and we can train the teachers to give them some kind of uh, reinforcement for the future uh, we will be able to create a population base of young people who will then make the right choices for the future that Pakistan needs or the world needs and they will move into that direction and they, he spoke about the IT sector but again the health sector is also one of the areas which is also uh, not uh, doing that doing quite good 
So um, I think that uh, we, uh, the, the message from today is that we, uh, as senior people who can do something about it, we must um, do our bit for the system that we can uh, inculcate some kind of uh, um, motivation for the youth to work for the future and make the right choices that, uh, that is of their own interest. And then uh, we need to have a merits-based system where they can flourish and they can progress and they can, and then they can motivate other people, other younger people as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Saptar. So Hill Saab, now the two organizers of the webinar, come on, sum it up for us. Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, we, we had a good discussion and uh, thank you very much for your uh, kind of um, yeah, moderating the whole thing and uh, bringing uh, people in the discussion. Uh, the way I look at is, uh, I, I'll refer back to the well-being framework for the youth that uh, is internationally recognized, which says that there are five major elements to the well-being that is cognitive, sociocultural, nutritional, emotional, and physical. And for all these five, there are internal factors. Many of them were covered by Dr. Izvan Taj, and there are external factors. Now, uh, keeping this in mind, then there is this macro level, meso level, and micro level. Uh, many of the things which have been said about the macro environment system economic, they're right, and we need to change those uh, things, incentive structures. But I think on all these five, major elements, we can positively impact many of the internal and external factors. A lot of things have to be done by the parents, by the community, by the school, by the education, by the organizations. I, I think a lot of such elements have been highlighted, which should help us. Uh, there's a lot of need of this intersectoral discussion today. Uh, uh, it's good that we have uh, people from so many different domains talking about a phenomenon which is still scientifically less understood. So we have identified many of those internal and external factors which can be uh, positively impacted today or for the people who are still very young, adolescent, even younger than that. And if we focus on those elements when they become young, uh, and um, enter into the labor market, we can expect better things to happen. I'll uh, simply conclude, uh, we have talked less about the external environment. Uh, Dr. Izvan Taj has taken good care of internal and he was kind because I requested him that uh, do cover the socio-cultural uh, environment and he covered that also, but I think we need to uh, have a much bigger focus. Uh, Mahmoud Khalid has identified a very important uh, area of an external environment. Uh, in IT sector, as Javed Asim talked about the sector, it's dynamism. So uh, we have done a study in Islamabad on digital labor. It's a classical example of lot of work for pittance. Average incomes of the freelancers in Pakistan is very, very low. We have success stories, 300,000 uh, a day or month, whatever. The point Mahmoud Khalid is making is that give them a minimum protection comfort so that their innovativeness, their inventions, their creativity can be 
unleashed so these are the kind of linkages which at the sectoral level we talk about taking the social security or social protection to the informal sector how would we do that and if we do that what kind of results would it produce in those khuram uh, talked about ai this is true that the future of work is actually uh, particularly in the west but in pakistan also we can expect much higher level of uh, unemployment or different kind of future of work is very different so here i i think we should be mindful of those uh, linkages which may exist between providing minimum social security to at least the creative workers in in the ict sector and we would be very happy to uh, sit with navtech and follow people on the job that what happens 6 months down the road one year down the road that is also extremely important and we i we don't say that you moralize uh, in your classrooms but uh, there are many secular um, behavioral and attitudinal aspects which you can address with the help of social psychologists perhaps and that should those small tips can make a big difference in their life uh, so dr nadeem i'll 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 finally say that thank you very much this is an extremely important topic but very complex and unstudied and uh, next time you bring youth also on this forum let's have maybe from your university we we talk to uh, 5 10 20 people explain to them the issue and then listen to them that how do they look at uh, their so called uh, idleness and get their view that that may enlighten us even more thank you very much thank you thank you ahmed durani sir how would you sum it up so i think um, uh, if you allow me to re- respond to two aunts questions that were asked and then one uh, one line summary on this right so the question on ai i think is very important um and i think the question and i would uh, beg to disagree with soel saab that and also i think javed both of them said things which i think if you just look 10 years hence uh, the two most used fields khalid um are if you look at what is in freelancing pakistan is coding and content provision both coding and content provision are being replaced by ai faster than you can even imagine there were for example just yesterday i got an ai driven news analysis for arab news which basically you can't tell if a human has written it or somebody has just written them basically it's it's a machine writing it right so both of these are nothing but what i call manual labor in it they should be underpaid and that's not really uh, needs to be protected now on the question of protection i i think that the question on ai khalid my answer to you is if you read what the world is telling you about reskilling ai will create more jobs than it's going to replace this is a known fact and that, the, I, i will not go into details please have an offline conversation i'll uh, get you material to read why ai will create more jobs than it's going to replace okay so that's i'm not fearful that the job market is contracting it's just reskilling and we have to adapt to that i think the other important thing is that on 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 this whole discussion around uh you know why we are not and you know basically what i understood today is that we have a culture of what we call provision prayers and patronage right so that's our national narrative given that incentive structure which david also said it's a rentier society i think that uh, i would actually be all out all out i i don't want social protection but i am thinking very hard and that's why reason i work with sabdur swail saab is that i think cutting out government and cutting out unnecessary expenditures and basically doing ubi universal basic income may actually change that's one experiment i'm still thinking may work 
So Nadeem sir, I'm not saying that there is social protection. I'm not in favor of somebody who can't find work and just paying them just because they can't find work, they're not good enough. I'm actually saying that of all the losses we make from the revenue we collect, the fiscal side, maybe it's time to replace it with UBI and just let uh, maybe 80% of the government go. Having said that, the conclusion from today's seminar for me, I still don't have the answer uh, that while my office, you know, I have a ring-fenced environment, Nadeem Saab, where all incentive structures are right, and they have been right for six years. There is no, I am still not able to find the willing workers. The supply is so poor. And that's why I, I organized and I was very much willing to give time to this seminar. And I think when the three seminars we've had on HR during COVID, pre-COVID, right? The first COVID, you remember them very well, right? And nobody can find a, a, a match. There is just not the right supply of young labor. Now, whatever you want to call it, that's the way I put it. And so incentive structure right in my environment, mm -hmm. things are not working. Why? I don't know. Great. Thank you. Thank you. The incentive structure is working very well for me. Uh, the incentive structure is very working very well for my friends. AI comes or goes, it doesn't matter. We will have Islamabad Club, Sindh Club, Punjab Club. We will sit, the boys will sit there, have fun. And uh, many of them don't work. I have a friend who died, famous golfer, famous everything. He was always proud of the fact that he had never worked a stroke in his life. And he always used to tease me. Your problem is that you're wasting your life. So the issue is when you've got a society where the incentives are so structured. I'm just finishing a paper, Amir, on uh, the stock market. Mehbubul Haq said there were 22 families. We have progressed in the last 50 years. There are now 35 families. There is social protection, Saptar Sohail. There is social protection. I kept telling the World Bank that two people don't believe it because you're following international standards. We have local standards. We've got social protection in this country. People who are protected are our friends. They never go from riches to rags. And yes, you may quote uh, Malik Riyaz. He's probably the only guy who's from rags to riches. There is extreme social immobility in this country. Yes, there are exceptions that prove the rule. But the social immobility that prevails in this country, where Islamabad Club, Sindh Club, Punjab Club members sit there, lord over society, and they get all the tax-free perks, and they their memberships are also given to their gifted to their kids, whereas others, fresh entrants, can't get in. That is the society. This society is about excluding the poor. We did a webinar on that. We exclude the poor. We make sure. I have been to so many houses where one family has been serving them for four generations. That tells you what the social mobility is. So when you don't have social mobility, what signals are we giving to the youth? The skill set that is required, and there's a famous economist, Bommel, who wrote about this in 1980 or 90, I think, that the skill set that is required in a society, as Javed said, in a society run by the mafiosi is a mafia skill. You see cowboy movies, it is the cowboy shooting stuff. When you go to the University of Vienna in the early 20th century, you get a set of intellectuals who change the world. When you go to Cambridge in the 20s, you set uh, stuff. So there have been incentive systems in the world that have been created, and that's why I go back to culture, and Henrik makes a good point. Culture matters. Our culture is that of Sindh Club, Punjab Club, 
and Lord Macaulay. So we are responding to that culture. Our youth is responding to that culture. They know that if they plead with the government, they can get some kind of security and maybe even entry into synth club. That is what everybody is responding to. And I think we need to think about how we change this culture. Maybe we'll do a webinar on that next. Thank you, folks. Thank you, Amir. Thank you, Saftar. Please keep the ideas coming. We've got to do more of these. I really value this. And thank you, everybody, Javed Saab, Dr. Taj Saab, um, Arifa Bibi, everybody. Thank you. Khuda Hafiz.